you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We'll be reading verses 1 through 25. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he others mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement to consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as a flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if you, with your tongue, you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? Well, I will pray with my spirit, but... I will pray with my mind also. I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in a position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God really is among you. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, You are the one who communicates to us the mind of God. And you are the one who illumines the scriptures. So we ask now that you would bring clarity, that you'd keep me from error, and that you would apply your word to our hearts and lives for your glory and our good. Amen. In George Orwell's classic 1984, new speak is the language of the party. It is the only language which is losing vocabulary. The reason this is the case is because Big Brother is cinching his grip on the people's thoughts through their communication. One of the philologists of the 11th edition Newspeak Dictionary says this, don't you see 
that the whole aim of Newspeak is to narrow the range of thought. In the end, we shall make thought crime literally impossible, because there will be no words with which to express it. He continues, the whole literature of the past will have been destroyed. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Mike, Milton, Byron, they'll exist only in Newspeak versions. Not merely changed into something different, but actually changed into something contradictory of what they used to be. Even the literature of the party will change. Even the slogans will change. How can you have a slogan like freedom is slavery when the concept of freedom has been abolished? The whole climate of thought will be different. In fact, there will be no thought as we understand it now. Orthodoxy means not thinking, not needing to think. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. Those are potent words. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. Now, there's a sense in which that could have been the slogan for some in the Church of Corinth. Now, I say that because Paul, in this chapter, is going to turn and engage specifically in a discussion about what was going on in the church. He's been responding, as we've said, beginning back in chapter 12. 12, 13, 14 is a section. And he's responding to a letter that the Corinthians had written to him. And he's saying, now let me address the, the spirituals, the spiritual gifts that you wrote to me about. And he unpacks them in chapter 12, as we've seen, that everyone has received a manifestation of the Spirit. That is, as Matt's repeated again and again, which is helpful, a gift or a ministry or a working And then he goes in to say, but we're like a body, and body all has different parts, and so we we don't all have the same gift. There'll be a variety of gifts. The main thing is that they're used in love. And so he's laid this foundation, and now in chapter 14, he's going to address the prime issue that they wrote to him about. And it seems that they were using these ecstatic tongues that they're just rambling on, interrupting the services we'll see later in this chapter. And so Paul writes to address this issue, that unconsciousness... It's not good. That it requires intelligibility and edification. That ecstatic tongues is not a good thing. Now, I've experienced this personally. Years ago, I was an associate pastor in Rochester, New York, and Franklin Grand came to town, and he did a, a series of crusades around the Great Lakes. We called it Rock the Lakes. And many churches volunteered. And uh, so I was a section chief. I kind of oversaw a particular area. And it was a two-day event, and I'm there the first day. And there was a, a very... Pentecostal charismatic brother in that section. There's a, Rochester has a fairly big population of those folks. And he's sitting in this section next to me during the first day. And uh, he is one of the uh, like counselors. So when they do the altar call, he would go up and you know, meet with people. And I noticed this brother, like whenever a song played that particularly ministered to him, he'd jump up and start shouting in tongues at the top of his lungs. And, uh, you know, it doesn't, doesn't bother me. But day two, a family came and sat next to him. Like the most buttoned down group you could imagine. Uh, this is, you know, mom, dad, six or eight kids wearing the uber conservative homeschool garb, blue dresses, uh, blue shirts, except with khaki pants. Um, you know, and they're sitting next to him and they all come and they sit right next to him. And I kid you not, the kids were sitting there with hands in their laps and like folded up, you know. And I see this happen. I'm going, this is not going to go well. This is really not going to go well. And sure enough, we get into the first worship set and the first song that grabs this Pentecostal brother next to him. He jumps up and just starts shouting in tongues. And I swear, if I remember correctly, I might not, but the mom and dad lean over and like block the little kid's ears, you know, and they stand up and they relocate to somewhere out of earshot. Now, if Paul would have been there, he wouldn't have relocated 
Chapter 14 says he would have rebuked that man. He would have rebuked him. Paul would have stood up and said, brother, the point of the gifts is to pursue them in love. That's the sermon title for today. Pursuing the gifts in love. We're going to trace Paul's argument and stay very close to his argument that he makes in the section. Technically, all of chapter 14 is one argument. It's, it's, it's bracketed on both sides by pursue prophecy, eagerly desire prophecy. It's one argument, but there's sub-arguments, so we're going to run down through verse 25. And this is the way Paul's argument unfolds in these first 25 verses. First point, love requires intelligibility. That's verses 1 through 12. Second point, edification aims at both spirit and mind. Verses 13 through 19. And edification is necessary for evangelism. Verses 20 through 25. So one more time quickly. Love requires intelligibility. Edification aims at both spirit and mind. And edification is necessary for evangelism. So we've said again throughout this series that Paul has said everybody receives either a gift, a ministry, or a service. But remember... The very first sermon, or second sermon we did, Matt looked at the end of chapter 12, and we have to have that in mind to understand this section. He uses the illustration of a body. If the lever soap commercials are correct, then we each have about 2,000 parts. That's what lever sold their soap, right? For all of your 2,000 parts. Which means that we have two hands, and two feet, and two legs, and two eyes, and two ears. But we have one mouth, and it's been wisely said that God gave us two ears and one mouth to use them proportionately. We should talk half as much as we listen. And I think that would be true in the church. Uh, just, just as a general rule, there's roughly 200 people here on a Sunday morning. There's only two or three that get up here and speak. And that makes sense if we are a body. Not everybody is a mouth. And Paul's whole point at the end of chapter 12 is everybody has different gifts. Not everybody is. He even goes on to say, not everybody prophesies, do they? Not everybody speaks in tongues, do they? So we're part of a body. But the challenge comes when you get to chapter 14. Because as I said, chapter 14 is bracketed by the fact that he says, eagerly desire to prophesy. So, so is he contradicting himself? Is everybody meant to desire to prophesy? What is happening here? Well, look with me again at verses 1 through 5. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. One of the books that the elders read to prepare for this series was by Andrew Wilson called Spirit and Sacrament. I I recommend the book. It's a very helpful book. But on this particular point, he really presses and he makes it seem as though it's almost a universal thing that every Christian should desire to prophesy. I don't know if he goes quite that far to say it, but you get the impression that maybe that's what he's doing. And when you look at the chapter, that seems like it could be a possibility. However, I want to argue that I think we should be careful about that. Because this is a specific argument. Paul's shifted gears now. He's addressing an issue in the church. So this is what happens. Addressing this issue in the church, 
First, notice how Paul grounds his argument. So verse 1, there's three clauses for you, you, you uh, sentence lovers. There's three clauses. First, is it the imperative, the command, pursue love? And then the second command, desire the spiritual gifts. And then especially, or perhaps it could be translated, rather, that you may prophesy. If you take that verse as it is, and it sure sounds universal, but it's grounded in verse 2. As you get that word, for. It's a grounding. It's, it's a logical argument for the one who speaks in the tongues. Ah, notice what he's just done. He's limited the scope. He's speaking specifically to people who speak in tongues, which seem to be a, a, a number of people in the Corinthian church. Now, that's not to say that you can't or shouldn't pray then desire the gift of tongues. But it is to say that this is not demanding that every Christian desire to speak in tongues. I just don't think that fits the context. Particularly because chapter 12, he's already said, not everybody prophesies. We're a body. We have different parts. And different parts. If, if you have a body that's all mouth, you have no body. You have a really weird, like, abstract art thing. So it, it would be really strange, and I would say inconsistent, for Paul to lay out at the end of chapter 12... Everybody has different gifts. We're a body. We have different parts. And then 14 verses later to be like, but every single part of you needs a desire to be a mouth. I just don't think it works. So I I love Wilson's book. I, I commend it to you. I just don't think it's helpful on that particular point. So if Paul's command is not universal, then my introverted friends in the room, take cheer. You are not in sin for not eagerly desiring to prophesy. I'm some of you right now are wiping cold sweat off. Just reading that first verse, that, wait a minute, I have to eagerly desire to prophesy? I don't like to talk to people I haven't known for 35 years. So, so that's okay, but, but we also need to pay attention. Because notice Paul's argument. Paul's argument is this. The reason prophesying is preferred to tongues is it builds other people up. That's the whole flow. So you may not have to repent of not having earnestly desired to prophesy. But we all need to repent. For those times when we seek gifts or use gifts for some end other than building other people up. That's the whole argument of chapter 14. That love requires intelligibility because edification requires intelligibility. That's his whole point. It is far better for us to be those who live with the blinds open, as our info book says, than to be those who have a a thousand different services and a thousand different activities and and ministries. We have a building, but it's actually better for us as a church to be in the community and living in the community and using relational gifts than it is to create this kind of thing where we all want to huddle around here for warmth. So that's why when I first got here back in 2012, I remember Matt saying, the discipleship ministry of the gathering church is the gathering church. And at first, that's, what? But no, it just means that we desire personal relationships. The the way we grow is through personal relationships. The gifts operate. The ministries, the workings operate, not in the abstract, but in relationship for the building up of others. That's the point. That's the aim of everything we do with the gifts. So the goal of the gifts is intelligibility toward edification. So that's the first point here. But look at verse 12, because he's going to summarize it. But before he gets to verse 12, actually, so in 6 through 11, Paul's just giving you illustrations. And he gives you the illustrations from music and language. And and first he says, you know, if you have a bunch of musical instruments and they don't make distinct sounds, you don't have music. You you have noise, a racket. And then he specifically says, you know, the bugle or the trumpet, if it didn't make a distinct sound, how would they know to go to battle? 
the first image that popped into my mind studying this this last week was, imagine someone putting a bugle to their lips and the sound of a music box came out. Nobody's going to charge after that. No, there has to be a distinct, intelligible sound. And that's his point here. Same thing with language. Uh, to, to my friends who are bilingual in the room, uh, you can speak the other language, but I'm not going to understand you and vice versa. That's what Paul does. And he summarizes his first point there in verse 12. So again, look at verse 12 with me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. That's his point. Now, there might be a little wordplay going on here. He says, you're eager. Uh, that's the, the word zealot. Since you're zealots for manifestation of the spirit, then zeteo. That's strive. And then he uses a superlative, eagerly, exceedingly strive to build up others. The point of the gifts is to build up others in love. So that's Paul's first point. That a loving, godly zeal for gifts must be rooted in pursuing, building others up. And that requires intelligibility. So that brings us to point two. Edification aims at both the spirit and the mind. Get verses 13 through 19 with me. Therefore, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Here's the next command that Paul gives in this list. And it is, if you are one who prays in tongues, you are commanded by the apostle Paul to pray that you have a gift of interpretation. Because the point of the gifts is to build others up. It's a pretty simple point. But Paul does something interesting here. He actually, he switches to the first person. Did you catch that? Paul all of a sudden changes. And he says, this is what you, if you pray in a tongue, then you need to, to pray for the gift of interpretation. This is I. I. If I pray, my spirit is built up. But I would have my mind be built up also. Because he says, if I pray in a tongue, I'm unfruitful. Now, that's an interesting thing that he does there. So what we actually see is Paul is, seems to be sharpening the understanding of how we should look at the gift of tongues. There's an issue of fruitfulness here. He says he longs to pray not only with his spirit, but also with his mind. He longs to praise not only with his spirit, but also with his mind. So in other words, if you're feeling it, there's a tension here. I desire that you all speak in tongues. And yet, I desire that you be fruitful with your mind. He, he's pushing on this issue. That if you're someone who is speaking in tongues and that's been part of your experience in the Christian walk, praise God, Paul says. He, he thanks God for that. And yet, don't stop there. Press on for fruitfulness. Because intelligibility is important for your own personal edification as well. Now, in the context, he's going to push that in on the church. But he switches to the first person singular, I think, to demonstrate that there's some element of this that we need to keep pressing in to our minds as well. D.A. Carson tells a story when he was a young pastor, and he was pastoring a church in Vancouver, British Columbia. 
And the church was kind of split on this issue. And there were some who were very charismatic and some who were not charismatic at all. And, you know, there are discussions about this. And so he said, I'm going to preach a series on this topic. So he preaches through these very same type of sermon series that we're going through. And at the end, they did like a debrief at a members meeting. And some folks were just really saying, you know, tongues has changed my life and it's been wonderful. And others are like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, it's like another language to me. And so they're going back and forth. And and Carson knew one of the brothers, he'd been like, I think he was a deacon or something. And he'd been a faithful man and everybody just respected him. He's just one of those faithful, godly men. Had been around a long time. And Carson also knew that he had a past as a pretty charismatic guy. He says, Bill, I mean, tell me, you've grown up in charismatic circles. Did Did you ever pray in tongues? And he says, oh, yeah, definitely. Well, well, I mean, what do you, tell me about it. He says, well, I, I very much agree with my brothers and sisters over here. It just, it, it edified my soul. There's been times I haven't had words, but I was able to have words. And I was able to commune with God even when I ran out of speech. Oh, yes, I've been very much helped by the gift of tongues. And Carson goes, oh, great. And he sees all the charismatic folks in the congregation getting really excited. And then he, he says, do you still speak in tongues? And the guy says, huh, you know, I haven't, I guess I haven't thought about it. No, I guess I haven't in quite some time. He goes, well, why do you think that is? He says, well, for me personally, I just, once I really came to know my Lord, I want to speak intelligibly, intelligibly to him. I know him. I, I don't run out of words when I'm talking to God usually. So no, I, I think I, I, I want to press for intelligibility. Now, I think Paul probably would have got on board with that. There's nothing wrong. If tongues edifies you, praise God. Just pray in tongues. But we all should be pressing for fruitful minds. As one commentator helpfully says, a fruitful mind instructs others and leads to fruitful results. That, that's why he summarizes his point in verse 19. He goes on to say that I'd rather say five words than our English translation is 10,000. It's, it's myrios. It's a myriad. It's, it's the biggest number in Greek. I'd rather say five intelligible words when I'm with the body so I can build others up rather than endless words, innumerable words in a tongue. Because the point is edification. The point is fruitfulness. The point is growth. So I hope you feel the tension there. Paul is creating this tension. It, it's not one way or the other. So don't come up afterwards and say, did you say I should? No, that's not the point. Paul holds attention here. He says, I wish, I eagerly desire for you all to speak in tongues. And yet, I eagerly desire you all to press for fruitfulness and intelligibility and growth. So, how do we apply this particular section? Well, the first application, I think, is pretty clear. If you're someone who speaks in tongues, Paul commands you to pray and desire and long for the gift of interpretation. Why? So that your mind will be edified, so that you can edify others. That's the first thing. But that flows into a second piece of application. So we've seen Paul here is, is unpacking this, how the pursuing the gifts in love, that means we should desire to build others up. Notice then, The gifts are a radically other-centered thing. Unfortunately, in American evangelicalism, there's lots of, like, spiritual gifts gifts tests. I don't know how many of you have had to take those before or took them. I think the one college I went to required it. And and unfortunately, it's all about, like, what is your gift? And, and And the problem becomes you're constantly focused on, well, what is my thing? And so you turn inward. But everything in this chapter, I'd say in these three chapters, is all showing you the gifts are that way. They're looking at others, building up others. And I would say that an illustration of this really potently is brought 
out in Mark 9.35. Jesus sits down and he calls the 12 to himself and he said, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now what's fascinating is what caused Jesus to say that is that the 12 were, shockingly enough, they were arguing over who was the greatest. So the 12 bickering over, you know, well, I mean, he he took me up on the mountain. you, You didn't get to go. Yeah, but I sat next to him at dinner. I mean, they're arguing over who's the greatest when God is right next to them. Like, it, it baffles the mind that those conversations take place. And yet they do. But Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last, servant of all. See, we live in a society that constantly follows the same kind of line of inquiry that the disciples were. A business insider has the 40 smartest people alive today. Time magazine the 100 most influential people. Harper's 50 most beautiful. Uh, There's ranker.com. You you can find hundreds and hundreds of rankings. Friends, I have to say, there is something satanic in the human desire to rank and compare and to be first. The reason that we have this desire to be ranked is that we're doing exactly the opposite of what Jesus did. Earlier in this very letter, Paul says this, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, what's fascinating about that is elsewhere, Paul says, this is what Christ did. This is the way you're supposed to follow him. It's in Philippians 2. And he starts off with this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, if you understand the gifts, if you get away from that picture of how the gifts are to operate, we've lost it. And that's perhaps one of the most dangerous parts of studying the gifts of course, it's not dangerous. It's God's word. But my point is, is there's, this, there's this thing about we instantly want to rank. We instantly want to compare. There's a knee-jerk temptation to want someone else's gift or platform or ministry. We're constantly looking. I mean, the grass is always greener on the other side, is it not? Make no mistake that even our desire to build others up can oftentimes also at the same time be a desire to bolster ourselves for selfish ambition this is why paul says he follows follow him as he follows christ in his example of humility that if anybody had the right to be like so you want to see a gift follow me do exactly what i do actually everybody stop talking i'm going to talk it was jesus right if there was anybody who ever should have made so much out of his gift it was jesus he's god but he didn't do that. He humbled himself. He took the form of a servant. His chief ministry was a service unto death. Friends, whatever you take from the series on the gifts, make sure, absolutely certain, that the aim is others. Building up others. 
a deep humbling of ourselves. Ed Welch has put, most sins are ungodly exaggerations of things that are good. So maybe you feel you possess a gift that would really serve the body. Maybe other people are currently using or operating in that area. The best thing you can do is to humbly serve that person. Even if you think, well, I could do that better. The best thing you can do is to lay aside your desire and humbly serve that person who is operating in that ministry. That's what Paul's calling us to. Edification requires intelligibility. It requires fruitfulness. And it requires humility. Paul now transitions to this last section. So if you look with me at verses 20 through 25. He says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of a strange tongue and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues... And outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all and he's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So Paul moves into this second illustration and it starts by saying, don't be little children in your thinking. Uh, why would that be important? Well, how many of you have been around a little kid who does this? Look at me. Watch me. Quick, look at this. Watch. Look what I'm doing. It's a very apropos illustration for this particular church because that's exactly what he's going to critique them on next, next time. It's like, no, be quiet. If you're only speaking in tongues and you can't interpret, you can't build somebody else, then be quiet in the service. Stop it. That's, that's what he's going to say. So it doesn't work. Watch me. Look at me. So Paul uses his illustration to say, calm down. No, that's not the point here. We need to seek edification. If everyone sits around babbling in tongues, no one's going to understand anything, he says. So, Paul then presses this into the church assembly, saying what Carson summarizes, I think, very well, is whatever the place is for profound personal experience and corporate emotional experience, the assembled church is a place for intelligibility. Our God is a thinking, speaking God. And if we will know him, We must learn to think his thoughts after him. So don't be children. Don't be jumping up and down. Watch me. Look at me. And then he's going to move into the next part, which was what we read earlier in the service from Isaiah chapter 28. See, in Isaiah, it's interesting. There's there's this part there in chapter 28 where it's talking about this drunkenness. And all of a sudden it changes from drunkenness. It's a little hard to follow. But at first it's like, oh, they're drunk and they're just drinking. They're, They're slobbering all over themselves. These, they, they stagger with strong drink. And then all of a sudden it changes and says, To whom will he teach knowledge and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast, for it's precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. The, the trick in Isaiah is to figure this out. The drunks that he's talking to are the teachers and leaders in, in Isaiah's day, the leaders of Jerusalem. It's like they're drunk. Well, it's drunk with power or whatever, but they're, they're drunkards. And then they're looking at Isaiah and they're saying like, Isaiah, bro, your teaching isn't fit for babies, man. Those just weaned. They won't learn anything from you. 
you just drivel on and on. Now, we get this precept upon precept. It, it's, in the Hebrew, it's a little, it's a little uh, more sing-songy or play. It says, tzav la tzav, tzav la tzav, kav la kav, kav la kav. The picture is like you doing baby speak to your baby. That's the point. The, the leaders in Israel are looking at Isaiah and being like, dude, you teach us like we're infants. You're looking at us, oh, tzav la tzav, kav la kav. They're mocking him. And so Isaiah says, oh, okay. So you don't think you can learn anything from someone you don't understand? You don't think you can, my, my baby speech makes any sense to you? Okay. Well, he goes on in the rest of the chapter to say, when the Syrian army invades, you know what you're going to hear when their generals are taking you away? Tzav l'tzav. Tzav l'tzav. Kav l'kav. Oh, yeah. You can learn a lesson from baby speech. It's a lesson of judgment. That's the point. So if we're all speaking in tongues and people come in, what do they hear? They hear a message of judgment, meaning they don't hear the gospel. They don't hear the only thing that can save them. Intelligibility is necessary for edification. And that is where love flows with the gifts. So this illustration then, in this rest of the chapter, you'll see is what these people were doing were these ecstatic tongues and prophecies and interrupting each other. They're jumping up and down like a little kid. Look at me, look at me. Paul says, don't be a child. That's not the place. In the church, we seek edification. So hopefully you, you see this application. It's run through this whole section. Is that apart from love in our pursuit of the gifts, we become a great danger to the people of God. Apart from humility, In the pursuit of the gifts, we become a great danger to the people of God. For example, the moment this or any other pulpit becomes a place to display a pastor's exegetical or homiletical chops rather than exulting and exalting in the risen king, we damage God's people. Some of you are from churches, and I can tell you many churches over the last five years, let alone 50 or 100 years, where the pastor started to care far more about his gift. Look at me, look at me. Than about the sheep, than about the church, than about edification. And many have been wounded. Many have fled from the church because of it. But there's another insight from this text, which is very important as well. Did you notice that Paul is pressing on the fact that our worship services need to be intelligible also for unbelievers, also for outsiders? Isn't that interesting? Now, church service is for the members. That's the main reason we gather. But we dare not craft a worship service and a culture, a church culture, which is so unique, which is so niche, that we ostracize the very people we are called to witness to. We just cannot do that. So what that means is that we need to constantly be thinking about our culture. That doesn't mean you cannot have a unique culture, but it does mean you need to critique your culture. It means we need to be thinking, what are those ways that's the gathering church that we can make sure that this is a place where outsiders come and they feel welcome and they hear the word and there are not barriers. That's something we need to continue to think through and pray towards because Paul's saying our service also has to have at least an eye towards evangelism. That's part of the reason why we introduce the different elements in the service. In case you didn't know this, the elements of the service come from many historical parts of the church through the years, and they tell the gospel. So Matt introduced the call to worship this morning. You would never run up to the White House and hop the fence and stroll up to the lawn. You'd get shot. 
But for some reason, we have this idea that anybody can just run up to the holy God. We've lost the Isaiah 6, who is me, I am undone. We've lost that. Now, praise God, guess what? He calls us, he welcomes us. So we open the service with a welcome. So if you're visiting with us and maybe you don't understand why we do that each week, it's because we know, we recognize that just like you need an invitation to the White House, you need an invitation to come stand before the king. But he invites. So every week we hear the scripture invite us into his presence. And upon being invited, we respond with worship and awe and we respond in singing or in prayers of praise and sometimes with confession of sin as with today, acknowledging that though he invites, we continue to fail. And so we confess So that's why we have to introduce those elements in the service to make sure that outsiders are welcomed and to make sure that insiders are reminded of the realities that are going on in the service. Now, perhaps you're here this morning and you're either not a Christian or you don't know if you're a Christian. Maybe you read these last couple verses about falling on your face in worship and you're like, well, I mean, that's kind of silly. I don't really know that I even buy this stuff. I'm going to fall on my face in worship. I just don't know about that. Well, Here's the, here's the point that Paul's making. You see, maybe you see church as a great community. It's a great place to have some relationships, some friendships. Maybe it's a, a you know, help for raising your kids. We, we love community in our day and age. Our tribe. Well, make no mistake, those are wonderful benefits of the church. But that's not primarily what the church is. The church is the assembly, the gathering of God's people which is why we make such a big deal about church membership. So we know who the church proper is. Now, if you're a guest with us, we welcome you and we're so excited you're here. But the church is primarily about the members who gather. And we long to have others come and join and become members because it's about the gathering. But the church is also the place where the reality of God is proclaimed. You see... The church is for people who've come to see that this world and every person in it, ourselves included, are broken. That we're we're stained with sin. That each and every day that we live in this world and act as though God doesn't exist, that we're not utterly dependent on him for every breath, that it's a radically arrogant thing to do every single day. One theologian has given the illustration. It's like a little child seated on its father's lap. The the child, if the father removes his hands, the child tumbles and falls over, supported and held up by the father. And yet the child slaps the father in the face. If it wasn't for the father's loving hands holding the child, they fall. And yet he holds them still. Friends, every day that we wake up and take a breath and we don't say, thank you, God, for another breath. Thank you, God, for another day. It's a day that we're sitting on his lap and slapping him in the face. So when Paul says, the secret thoughts of your heart are disclosed, that's what he's saying. Because it is only in this place where you get to hear of the God who created a world and created a people to be in relationship with and committed treason against him. It is only in this place where you're reminded that that God who created a people who treasoned against him then sent his son to die for those people, to call them to himself. This is the place. And once you hear that, and once you come to see that you've been sitting on God's lap and slapping him in the face, you come to see him as a loving father, as a gentle, forgiving, merciful father. And when that reality lands, then you do fall on your face, whether metaphorically or physically. So how about you today? 
Maybe you're here, you're a Christian, or maybe you're not a Christian. Have you lost what that is to realize that every day is a gift? Maybe you're not sure if you're a Christian, but you're starting to see the reality of what is done in this church. That we acknowledge our need and we acknowledge his provision. If that is you and maybe you're here and you have more questions or want to talk further, I'll be standing out in the hall. would love to talk with you more. But friend, I'd encourage you, when you feel God call, respond. So to summarize this passage, make sure we all understand what Paul's doing. Since the greatest good of the Christian life is love. Chapter 13 made that so clear. Then even our desire for spiritual gifts must be shaped by love. And love is a radically others pointing activity. Which means that eagerly desiring the manifestations of the spirit is to desire to build others up unto the glory of God. So we long for growth and maturity in our fellow members and our friends, regardless of what manifestation of the spirit we receive. Oh, friends, eagerly desire the greater gifts, the gifts that build up your friends and the other members in love. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you are a God who has shed your love abroad in our hearts. And that you are a God who has sent your spirit to fill us and to gift us for the building up of the body of Christ. And so we pray that we would be a people who radically love and serve each other and build each other up in love for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.